Welcome to the London Politica podcast. This is where we join industry thought leaders and experts to uncover the nexus of politics, markets, and society. My name is Manas Chabwa, and the guest joining me today is the person to talk to about international security. He's a deputy chair and CEO of the Munich Security Conference and is a board member of the Global Governance Institute. My guest is Dr. Benedict Frank. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, Manas. Um, Benedict, there's so many things I want to talk to you about today, uh, but I, I thought it might be useful to sort of start from a really high level and then maybe narrow down on some of the more important things going on in the world. But, uh, you know, you've spent your life uh, thinking about the most pressing questions on uh, international affairs, on security, on global governance. And I feel like you you might have been privy in that sort of role to see the way we've, you know, the meta way we talk about security just sort of changing across those many years. Uh, when I came into university and used to think about security, I thought it was entirely about guns, wars, and militaries. Uh, but uh, there's a natural evolution sort of post-Cold War and definitely accelerated perhaps by the pandemic, uh, where we use a security lens to think about almost everything. Uh, but especially, you know, the climate crisis, especially things like the, the, the pandemic. Um, and I, I'm wondering kind of what your sort of perspective is on that and seeing that sort of definition of security evolve over the last so many years, uh, but also how your work uh, on in an operational day-to-day basis and the work of the Munich Security Conference has evolved uh, in relation to that. I mean, you know, having having dealt with security for quite some time, it's it's easy to get depressed talking about it. But sort of the, the one thing that I think is absolutely true in what you've said is that the, the notion of security, not just in my mind or in, in the work of the Munich Security Conference, but in the more general public debate has really broadened. I mean, from, from guns and tanks, we've included germs and viruses and uh, temperatures, and you know, it has become really broad. We've introduced notions like uh, human security, Mm. Uh, we've uh, we've gone from a, an alliance definition of security to I, I would say a global definition of security uh, over the last couple of years. And at, at the Munich Security Conference, that wasn't an easy process for us because you know we are born uh, after after the Second World War. We've we've gone through uh, some some very confrontative periods during the Cold War. Uh, we are uh, rooted very firmly in the transatlantic in the US German relationship and hence that that sort of you know clouds your view a little of of, of the globality of, of of security we were for for decades mm. all about um the the fight against the Soviet Union and it has taken quite some time for us to to broaden our horizon however I, I still believe that we were faster than most. I mean, we started talking about cybersecurity um, 2008 uh, as a major issue. Uh, health security 2013. Um, it was in our conference in 2015 that Bill Gates gave his famous speech about the next pandemic mm-hmm. that so many people are now using in their conspiracy theories. And, and so we've always tried to, to be ahead of the curve and anticipate which way this constant redefinition of security is going. And, and I believe that the next, the next wave uh, is, is, is about to, to hit. I think what we're going to see is uh, a departure from this rather simplistic view that security is getting broader and broader and broader uh, to uh, a multi-layered definition of security that will encompass all aspects of statecraft 
um, from the you know the, the basic uh, democratic processes to economic and uh, and even social policies. And if you allow that, the one thing that that we're quite keen to stress at the Munich Security Conference is that the the war in Ukraine, the current debate uh, around uh, China, um, I think really showcases that we are in, in a systemic competition between sort of liberal democracies on the one hand and alternative governance models on the other. And that I think has, has woken up people and organizations and administrations to the truth that it's no longer enough to you know, include words like energy security and, and climate security and human security in your definition of security, but that you really, really, really need to security proof mm. absolutely everything that a state does. And just like we're beginning to climate proof absolutely everything that a state does, mm. we need to put security sort of as basic as it sounds at the center of everything that we do until that systemic competition is won and until we can then uh, begin to rebuild the international governance mechanism. Sorry for the long-winded answer. No, 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 that's right. I mean, close to my heart. Of course, no, it seems to me like what you're saying is it's not just, you know, broadening the definition of security and saying this is security and that security and this isn't uh, and just broadening that category, but it's more so looking at everything through the lens of security and what that means for the state, but also, you know, at a level, a more granular level of human security. Um, there's one thing uh, about uh, sort of what you said about the, the Munich Security Conference, perhaps a lot of your work being founded in this, uh, you know, transatlantic security relationship, particularly the one between the US and Germany. And, uh, you know, lots of commentators will look at the current uh, conflict and, uh, you know, say perhaps one of the silver, silver linings of that is Europe has finally woken up to its natural responsibility uh, to you know, commit to its defense burden to uh, sort of stray away from its historic over-reliance on the United States. Um, would you agree with that assessment? And uh, how much further does, do you think Europe should go? Okay, so I, I, I do agree with the assessment that, that parts of Europe have woken up to a harsh reality. Uh, I, I do agree with the assessment that um, they, this probably wouldn't have been possible without the Russian invasion. Mm. But we've had a couple of wake-up calls lately. I mean, the, the European Union had Brexit as sort of the, the very first wake-up call. The election of Trump, his insistence on the 2% uh, contribution, um, his insistence that uh, Nord Stream 2 was, was a massive error, his threat of moving uh, US troops from Germany uh, further to the east. I mean, you know, a couple of these points really hit home only now that he is gone. And, and unfortunately, uh, a couple of the things that have always been used as a, uh, a scarecrow have, have really materialized. I do believe the European Union, Europe, does need such wake-up calls. And I hope, you know, on the one hand, I, I believe we will continue to need wake-up calls as we recalibrate and, and as we get our act together. On the other hand, I hope we won't get too many of these wake-up calls because they always come on back of catastrophes or, or seismic change. I, I believe that the Zeitenwende, as we call it in, in German, is real mm. and things will actually change, uh, not just within Germany and Europe, but also in the 
relationship between the European Union and NATO and between Europe and the, the transatlantic partners, uh, most notably obviously US and Canada. But um, there is a lot of movement. And I think if we can get through this winter without fragmenting unity, without backpedaling on some of our commitments, you will see a much stronger Europe and a much stronger transatlantic alliance next year. Right. Um, you know, you mentioned energy security uh, as one of those things. And, uh, you know, when you kind of talk about uh, the idea that Europe's had already plenty of wake-up calls, I mean, energy security is some, you know, something seriously, like you mentioned, you know, Trump was talking about, other people were talking about before the Russian invasion. But I feel like it's only when the invasion happened and it's only when, uh, you know, average citizens looked at the news and saw that the government was planning possible blackouts for the winter that they woke up to this sort of conscious reality that, uh, you know, energy is this new dimension that's now part of war uh, and it can be weaponized in such a serious way. Uh, and it really gets to the heart of the population. It's not just about the army, the soldiers anymore, uh, which are kind of at a bureaucratic level. It sort of really kind of brings the nation state uh, at war at once. Um, and, you know, certainly I'm thinking, energy was the battle this time, but as you look towards future challenges and as you look towards kind of almost overlooked things, do you think there's another sphere or domain or, or kind of possibility of influence, something else that could be weaponized that we're not paying enough attention to right now? You see, there is a wonderful book called The Weaponization of Everything. Yeah. Um, and I think today that, that's what I meant with this, this you know, comprehensive view of security. Uh, we need to get better at accepting the fight wherever the illiberals take it, and that may be the fields of Ukraine, but that could be our fridges, you know, connected to the Internet of Things. Um, that, that could be a, uh, the heart of European regulations. Let me give you an example. You know, we, we always talk about European defense and security, and, you know, uh, a Europe that protects in the words of President Macron. Mm. And then we push through uh, a policy, uh, a regulation, um, that will force Apple and other, you know, global tech companies to open their app stores to the world. Um, that, you know, may be totally right from a fairness, a competition, and potentially even a taxation point of view, but thereby you are actually, you know, exposing 300 plus million of your citizens uh, and the, the, the phone they use every day for, to coordinate their lives and, and their um, involvement in society to illiberal actors. And so I think, you know, there are many, many spheres like that, many, many policies yeah. that make total sense from one perspective, but haven't been thought through mm. from a security, individual and collective security point of view. And so if you ask me, you know, what will be weaponized next? Let me just, you know, do, do a little detour. It's not the dependency on Russia that was the problem. It's the one-sided dependency that is the problem. Mm. Mutual dependencies lock players into, you know, a need to negotiate, into a need to agree with each other. But one-sided dependencies are an enormous challenge. And so I think what we need to get a lot better at is mapping and, um, and tackling one-sided dependencies throughout our supply chains 
And, you know, I mean, it's, it's obviously basic, basic knowledge that a lot of the materials that we will need to power the green transition, um, rare earth materials, uh, certain minerals, um, are currently only mined in illiberal or even authoritarian states. So the next dependency is on its way. I mean, 99.7% of all solar panels, you know, put on German rooftops have been made in China. So are we now replacing one dependency with another? Mm. Is it a one-sided or mutual dependency? Hard to tell, but I think we need to do a lot better at mapping this universe of dependencies. And, and I would... I would go so far as to say that we've now come to what, what people call a Machiavellian moment. Mm. That's sort of the moment in Machiavelli's time where the destiny of Florence hang in the balance and it was, you know, a make or break moment. I think now with, you know, the climate change imperative, the, the, the Russian invasion, the growing instability within the political structures in China and, and some other, you know, uh, dynamics combine into a moment that really hammers home the need to Europe, the transatlantic alliance and, and the liberal um, democracies of this world to get their house and their relationship, their narrative and their division of labor in order. And so I have uh, great faith in significant progress over the next month because, you know, that it really is an inflection point. And a lot of people keep talking about inflection points all the time. Yeah. Uh, I think this is a real one. Yeah. Um, you know, when you talk about the difference between mutual and one-sided dependencies, it kind of strikes me that there might be inherent, inherent sort of moral hazard, conflict of interest in the way we think about mutual dependencies. Because if the policymakers, uh, you know, if you look at tech in particular, some of the sort of videos that went viral of uh, the uh, you know uh, Senate hearings and uh, select committee confirmations, uh, you know, with uh, certain tech executives, um, it was clear that lots of policymakers felt like they knew way more than they actually did and felt like big tech was way more dependent on government than it actually was. Um, you know, there's certainly examples of them not knowing how to use an iPhone and asking questions about, uh, you know, Apple's digitalization regulatory policy that uh, made no sense. But I think in a more deeper way than that, uh, you know, big tech seems to be a beast of its own and whether or not uh, the government is ready to create a dependency uh, or, or to sort of harness it, uh, it uh, sort of, it's really going to unleash itself. And it's really about catching up to it now than it is about regulating it. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm sort of wondering, as, you know, we think about kind of the challenges in the next few months to the next few years, how is it that we can actually tangibly try to engage with big tech companies to sort of the, the tech executives who might feel like they are all powerful on their own, who might feel like they have all this influence and don't have to be reined in by big government. Uh, and, and how can we channel that? Not in a, we're going to regulate you and we're going to put constraints and barriers on the way you do business. So it's an antagonistic relationship, but rather in a constructive relationship. Um, what are the building blocks doing that? You know, this is an enormously complicated and complex question. But I, I think the, the core of the problem lies in our definition of social media companies as big tech. I mean, in essence, there are media players and we rein in and we control media players in, in mm -hmm. Germany, the US and the UK quite closely. We make these media players responsible for the content that they publish. And 
I think at the beginning, the defense strategy of, of big social media players was that it's really not their fault what people post on the platform. Fair enough. Ever since algorithms judge the quality of content and promote mm. or hide it, I think that line of defense has crumbled. And so what I believe we need to do very urgently is to, to come to an agreement with the, the, the various players on their role as, as content providers mm. rather than content um, communicators. Mm. And I think there, there is a, a, a subtle but very important difference between the two. And if you begin to punish obvious obvious failure to act on misinformation, obvious failure to push hate content, then, then I think you will see uh, a change of mind and also a, a change of speed in, in the way that these tech companies become very constructive players. Because, you know, we've come to a point in the discussion where we always talk about the negative aspect of social media. But there is an enormous positive potential. I mean, think about, you know, the funny stories that make you laugh. Think about the heartwarming stories. Think about the great, you know, crowdfunding or crowd intelligence aspect uh, of, of social media. Think about the way that could, you know, carry democracy and political debate or, you know, intellectual exchange to the furthest corners of this world. You know, mm. how do we make that happen? And how do we close the loopholes? And especially, how do we make it difficult for the bad guys, the liberals, to abuse this? Because at the moment, what we're doing is to stand there almost defenseless, almost inviting evil in on a daily basis. And the question is, do we really need to do that? Do we need to, you know, spend trillions of dollars on defense and missiles and rockets? If the bad guys can can buy Facebook ads and influence our, you know, uh, the next generation, I, I think that's just we need to reprioritize. And that, you know, an important point is uh, freedom of speech trumps everything. Yeah. Um, but there is there is an important distinguished, uh, you know, distinction between freedom of speech and harming others or yeah. misleading or misguiding others. And that discussion needs to be. Had And I don't think it would take away from the profitability of these tech giants. Uh, it, it, it would make them an ally mm. in fight for, for liberal democracy and not one of our biggest problems, which is ironic that our freedom uh, you know, and our, um, our openness and our discussion culture is becoming a weak spot in our defense strategy. And I think we need to have that debate more often and yeah. all over the place. And we need to force these companies with very harsh measures to do the right thing, I believe. Right, right. Um, there's, there's two words you mentioned there uh, that really caught my ear. You know, you said crowd intelligence. And uh, I mean, that's a topic that we're kind of uh, crowdsourcing intelligence that we're deeply passionate about at London Politica, because that's essentially what we do. We, uh, in our global communities that uh, use different open source intelligence methodologies to find out things about the world that I don't think it's an exaggeration to say we're only limited to the CIA or private intelligence, you know, uh, outfits maybe 10, 15 years ago. Um, and I certainly think that that's a sort of massive 
kind of point of disruption that maybe the mainstream security space hasn't woken up to. Uh, I had the chance to do a TED talk a, a couple of months ago, and I started with this example of uh, the fact that, you know, the Russian invasion, it came through, obviously, through the mainstream channels, and we heard about it from our governments, but uh, there were hundreds of thousands of people that had already, you know, kind of almost seen it coming on TikTok because they posted videos of tanks rolling in in Russian border towns. And then these OSINT experts would kind of gather global communities and they geolocated and then they tag it. I mean, in many ways, you could make the argument they were perhaps further, at least in the communications side of things and expressing to the general public of what was happening. And it, at the very least kind of makes uh, a very different reality of almost nothing is private anymore. Almost everything is, uh, you know, you can track any flight in the air now, you can uh, geolocate so many things. Uh, and it doesn't seem clear to me that the mainstream security industry is having the sort of conversations they need to about how to adapt to that. Is that, is that would you share that view? And, and if so, how can they kind of better do that? See, I, I, I usually agree with you. Uh, yeah. Here, I think I'm I'm of a slightly different opinion. See, I think um, the, the the mainstream, let's call the mainstream intelligence um, organizations, have woken up quite uh, quite a quite a long time ago, actually, to the potential of open source intelligence. Mm. However, um, monitoring the quality and um, guaranteeing the, the truth of something is very difficult. I'll give you an example. You've just said, you know, lots of people were sharing TikTok videos of, uh, of tanks rolling into Russian uh, villages at the border. Yes, but also the Russian intelligence apparatus was sharing things of, you know, videos of tanks rolling into villages where they wanted the Ukrainians to believe that there was going to be an attack. Mm. Mm. Beginning of the war, they were actually really good. I mean, you know, now that they're doing so badly currently, uh, we forget that the Russians actually, you know, set up quite a quite a impressive clouding operations mm. around the, the, the 24th of February. I mean, you know, the Munich Security Conference took place two days before, mm. and except for, except for the Americans, um, a lot of the states, if not most, were totally incredulous. They said it will never happen. No chance. You won't be that stupid. You will not do that. And, you know, now everyone claims they've always known it. But at the time, really, a lot of uh, organizations were totally wrong. And part of that was because the Russians very, very cleverly manipulated open source hmm. uh, So I'll give you an example, another example. You know, the you can track any flight example. A couple of weeks ago, there was a, a huge story about Elon Musk's plane landing in the middle of the Atlantic. And, you know, people made huge stories about uh, about this and were wondering, did he land on an aircraft carrier? What happened? Blah, 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 blah. Sure, sure. It turns out it was just somebody having fun. And, you know, the the I would say the quality of the sources isn't as easily verifiable as if yeah. you have your own intelligence apparatus collected from from root to treetop so to say and, yeah. and hence i think yes intelligence uh, organizations need to use open source intelligence even more aggressively second we need some kind of mechanism to verify thirdly we need to yeah. um clarify the question to what extent western countries 
alliances and organizations are allowed or should do their own, you mm. know, um, misinformation campaigns. You know, to what extent? It's not illegal to post on Twitter that you're going to attack the South if you really mean to attack the North. You know, there yeah. there is there are some really complicated questions here, and so. Yeah. What I think is true that outfits like yours yeah. um, do well in building on, on open source and crowd intelligence. Mm. It's a little more difficult for those players that have life or death decisions to link to the quality of that information. Yeah. No, you're not wrong about it. There is certainly a lot, a lot of noise uh, kind of in that space. And when you kind of, you know, it's hard to distinguish whether the success stories of OSINT are outliers or whether they're part of some emerging trend that we're just entirely neglecting. Um, you know, not to kind of labor that example too much, but like the one example that always stands out to me is of Bellingcat and of how they managed to, you know, bootstrap essentially an investigation into the like attempted assailants of Alexei Navalny, the Russian opposition leader. And they, you know, managed to use uh, sort of everyday tools to, to figure out who it was, but not only that, to contact that person to record the call with that person and to get him to admit that he was in fact the assailant. Um, I mean, to me, that's extraordinary. And I don't think that's something we could have seen 20 years ago. Uh, and I, I think maybe the conversation shouldn't be about, uh, you know, in what way are sort of intelligence communities trying to uh, kind of uh, use these technologies or sort of adapt them on their own, but rather how can they possibly work with, you know, private sector players? How can they work with public sector players uh, who might already have the capacity and know how to do this, but just perhaps help them do it better? Um, I think could be uh, sort of a fascinating uh, road to go down. I mean, you know, another point is, and I agree on the, the individual brilliance of examples like Bellingcat. Great, I mean, I admire uh, investigative work yeah that and you know the whether we talk about other things like the Panama Papers or sure. uh, I mean there, there have been so many uh, huge success stories lately that you know I don't want to distract from that and there is there is also another that's that sort of specific data yeah if we look at metadata it yeah. becomes even more interesting you know if, if a thousand people in Georgia uh are tweeting that they're waking up at night because the earth is shaking, there's a pretty strong likelihood that there is something going on, whether an earthquake or whatever, you know? So using metadata is incredibly powerful. And there are lots of companies out there doing that. And I think that helps enormously to complete or enrich situational awareness for governmental actors. Um, if and how governmental actors could be a little more like Bellingcat, I think it's a question one, one really needs to debate and discuss. I, I secretly hope without knowing that they are already doing a lot of Bellingcat-like work behind the scenes. Yeah, and, and, and perhaps by the very nature of it, we would, we would never find out about it, right? Um, no, fascinating. I mean, we started this conversation uh, with you almost admitting that, you know, thinking about international security can often be depressing at times. Uh, and there's certainly no shortage of uh, kind of global events to channel our thinking that way. Um, you know, I always like to sort of end off these shows on a more positive note is kind of when you look ahead, when you look to the next six, 12 months, the next 10 years, is there one particular thing that you think, you know, people aren't talking about enough, but is a real source of optimism for you? See, um, when, when I said that one could almost become depressed, I, I really yeah. meant 
I'm not yet depressed. Yeah. And I think it's a it's a fallacy of of the system and the, the, the world we live in that it, it's always easier to communicate, you know, the the drama and the failures than it is to communicate the success stories. We at the MSC, we see great success stories and best practices every day, whether it's, you know, in in in, in the food security realm where great technological innovations help uh, to, to feed the world or, you know, will really make a difference to, um, you know, coming back to the open source intelligence uh, theme we just had, there is a company that can now provide an up-to-date picture of any bit of the globe uh, once a minute. That is a new level of transparency. You yeah. will no longer be able to hide working or concentration camps. You will no longer be able to hide troop movements. And this new transparency, um, I think, will, will lead to um, a different type of international cooperation in, in the future. I'm also very hopeful on, on the climate change front. I mean, yes, at the moment, everyone is, is pretty pessimistic because of the, the harsh summer, the, the wildfires, the, the droughts, and so on. But I see a lot happening a lot faster than I thought would be possible. Yeah, and I see a transatlantic alliance that is beginning to align its strategies on some of the biggest challenges in the world and to um, politics prove them. Yeah. You know, um, I, I think what we're seeing now is something that even a President Trump 2.0 wouldn't be able to dismantle. Um, I, I think we 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 are seeing a lot of positive work on you know cleaning the oceans i think we see a lot of uh, very positive work on education around the world you know at the end education is the key to absolutely everything yeah and i think we are seeing some windows of opportunity on some of the frozen conflicts uh, right. of, of the last decade be it the balkans where you know the north macedonia has really opened a door into an, a new age or be it northern africa that most of us Europeans have, you know, thought lost um, in, in space. And I think a, a lot, lot of positive uh, bottom-up initiatives are happening there. And I am, I'm pretty hopeful that a decrease of dependency on oil will shake the Middle East into, you know, a, a situation where they have to redefine themselves yeah. their international relations. And I see that as positive. I also... And then I, I, I end, you know, we've, we've seen the pandemic and we've seen how the pandemic really um, split the world in half between, you know, the rich global north that, that could develop and administer vaccines very quickly and the, the poor global south that, that, that was lacking behind. I think, again, that has woken up um, a lot of people, organizations and countries to the need to get serious on financing commitments to the global south. Yeah. and to reassess development and economic cooperation policy. So, you know, that, that's only a few of the things that I see that are going into the right direction. And I, I really do want to end on a positive note that I think, despite all the drama, there, there is a, a ray of light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, no, what a beautiful note to end on. I asked you for one, and, and I think I got 15. Uh, you know, it was one thing, there was a previous guest of ours, uh, who an assistant secretary general from NATO, who made the point that uh, so many of the positive developments we see 
don't actually come uh, in the form of theater and optics, but they come in the form of resilience building and capacity building, uh, which by sort of its very nature is going to be almost an invisible process. It's not going to be something that's going to be shouted about from the rooftops, but and often it might not even reveal itself until a crisis happens. And I think broadly, the way we dealt with the vaccines, the way we dealt with the global pandemic, the way we dealt with the energy crisis, the way we're making some you know, swift strides on climate change, um, there, there's no shortage of sort of nuggets of optimism there. Um, so very, very glad to be ending on that note. Uh, thank you so much for, for taking the time, Benedict. Thanks for having me.